0: James and Carol, let's open the word of God, please, to Luke chapter 5. I think I know how to do this by now. Credit card debt, college loan debt, home mortgage debt. Being in debt is a big problem for many Americans. In fact, last year, the average American, this blows my mind, was thirty eight thousand dollars in debt, not including whatever they owe on their house. That's the average. Um, and of course, our national debt is now twenty one point four six trillion dollars. That's a, a million million, and that's real, that's really bad. But there's a worse kind of debt, and that's the moral debt that we owe to our Creator and uh, our Sovereign. Uh, The Bible teaches that each one of us as human beings owe God a moral debt that we can't even begin to repay, but he's paid it for us. We read in Mark 10.45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a payment for Dustin Sindet and uh, Janet Sindet and uh, Michael Sindet and Brad McCord Sindet. And this is why Jesus is the man who can forgive sins. Uh, when you're parenting young children, sometimes you'll tell Jonathan, uh, help your mother uh, set the table. And he'll go, why? And daddy will say, because I said so. Jesus is going to pronounce a man forgiven of his sins, and he's going to say in such a way, he's basically saying, you're forgiven because I say so. Who is the man who can forgive sins? Of course, as our Lord Jesus, we're going to see a passage where he goes out of his way to emphasize that truth, right? But first, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's word. And as always, we want to pray for those who protect and serve us, including our military, our peace officers, our firefighters, uh, international, national, and local. So uh, David Stribling, would you please pray in that direction? Thank you, David. We're going to be looking at some lessons from Luke 5. But first, remember, we do have a potluck lunch right after second hour. And so wherever you are in the building at the end of second hour, please pray for the food. And then uh, us guys, will kind of move the chairs out to the side, bring some tables in. Some of the ladies will be setting up uh, the food. And so we'll go like that. It's kind of our, our basic procedure. But thinking about lessons you can learn from Luke Five. You can actually learn a lot of lessons from young children. And I know that uh, the Wileys know that. But let's talk about three important lessons that can be learned by raising young children. Number three, one very unhappy one-year-old baby can be much louder than 100 adults in a crowded restaurant. Not real funny, but profound. Number two, when the words Play-Doh and microwave oven are both used in the same sentence, get ready... You're about to be part of a major cleanup project. And finally, small Legos can easily move through the digestive tract of a small child without damaging either the child or more importantly, the Legos. Okay, we've got this wonderful passage that is world famous. People just love the idea that the room is so full, these guys carrying this guy on his stretcher have to take the roof apart. I remember probably the first time I heard this as a little kid in Sunday school, I thought, my mommy wouldn't like somebody taking our roof off. You know, that's the kind of thing you think about as a young kid. Easily repairable back there back then based on the way they did the house building. But this is just a passage that's everybody's favorite. It's a Sunday school staple. So I know you're familiar with it. It's one of those miracles that's mentioned in three of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke all look at that. And it's really it's a great example of the way Just like if you have three eyewitnesses at a, at a car accident, the police will always talk to them separately because Phyllis will remember some details that I won't. I'll remember some details she doesn't mention kind of thing. And, uh, uh, Jim Wallace, who uh, is a uh, cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles County, came to faith in part because he started reading the Gospels, looking at them the way he would deal with witnesses to long since uh, considered cold cases cases you couldn't uh, possibly solve and uh, reliable witnesses will talk about the same thing in different ways and you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and this would be a good study sometime just to project uh, what Matthew says about this, what Luke says what Mark says and, and see how they're different but very much not divergent they're very similar so I'm going to bring some of that in today but let's survey this passage just kind of get up in a helicopter and look at it at the big points, and then we'll uh, survey or, or uh, scrutinize it a little bit, study it more closely. But yeah, look at verse uh, 17. You've got religious big shots from all over Israel doing opposition research on Jesus. Okay, this is not just they're curious. They've been assigned. Follow this guy. He's claiming to be the Messiah, and prove him wrong. Okay, they're coming with closed hearts. But they're not there as open observers. They're coming with a, with an agenda. They're looking for reasons to reject. So, you know, if Jesus can't please everybody, what chance do you have? Right? If you live to please Jesus, then, uh, you're good, right? In the Christian life. If you live to please everybody else, uh, it's, it's, you're bound to fail. But religious big shots come to monitor Jesus to, to kind of do opposition research on Jesus, verse 17. Verses 18 through 20 is what I'm calling not the setting, but the sensation. And we're going to see Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven because I say so. That's basically the upshot of this. He's going to say to the, uh, he sees the faith of all five of the people, the guys carrying the stretcher and the guy who's paralyzed, and he says, your sins are forgiven because I sell. that's That's the import, and you know that because of the way the religious big shots react. And it's interesting, in verse 21, and in verses 22 through 25, you've got first second-guessing about Jesus, and then second-guessing trumped by Jesus. In verse 21, the religious big shots say, Who is this man, looking at Jesus, who speaks blasphemies? Because who can forgive sins but God alone? That's true, isn't it? They've got a a good theological premise, but they're misapplying it. They're missing the point. And then Jesus trumps that, and he says, so that you may know, so I can manifest visibly my authority as deity, I'm going to do the impossible. I'm going to heal this paralytic, and I say to you, and that should sound familiar. What did we look at last week? Seeing isn't necessarily believing in John 5. You've got a guy who's been paralyzed for 38 years that Jesus heals, Uh, Similar passages, but two guys with totally different spiritual status quos. But so that I can validate my authority, let me say this paralytic who's hopeless from a medical human point of view. Get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And immediately the guy got up, picked up his stretcher, and he went home glorifying God. Okay, And then the final status quo is common people. The average guy is really impressed by who Jesus is. Now, they don't all necessarily trust him as the Christ, but they're very impressed with what they're seeing. But the religious crowd, the guys on a commission, on a mission to find stuff not to like, remain offended at Jesus. Okay? That's a survey. Now, let's look at the verses individually, the pa- passage as separate units of thought. Look at verse 17. One day... And when you look at the other two gospels that talk about this, this is early in the great Galilean ministry of Jesus before the official leadership of Judaism had said, hey, don't believe in Jesus. He's a demonically or satanically possessed false prophet. They haven't yet come up with that excuse, but they are looking critically at him, trying to find something not to like. So one day during the early phases of his ministry in Galilee, he was teaching. And Mark 2 tells us, verse 1, he was in Capernaum in a house. And the house in Capernaum is probably Peter's house. So let's put this on a map. And you know, I always like to say these are real places, real people, real things. Last week in John 3, we saw Jesus healing in Jerusalem at the uh, pool of Beth- uh, Bethesda. Now this week we're not in Judea, southern Israel. We're in Galilee, northern Israel, and we're in the city of Capernaum, which was his Operation, base of operations for his ministry. And there's our group picture at Capernaum. And uh, man, can you believe it's been four months since we, since we got back from Israel? It went by so fast, but man, what a, what a neat group. Now here's the thing. Dustin is so generous and he knows it's more blessed to give than receive. So he went and got a hot air balloon so he could take an aerial picture of Capernaum. And actually, there's a lot more archaeology they could be doing. But right now, uh, you can look at what remains of the synagogue, the seashore, and you can see a spaceship there. Doesn't that look like a spaceship? Uh, the Roman Catholics built a spaceship, a, a high-tech church, right on top of the ruins of Peter's house. Now look, this is, this is Peter's house. This is the, uh, the uh, synagogue. You're not very really far. It's an easy walk. And by the way, that group picture was taken right there. You know, you puff, you, 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 park your, you park your bikes and your buses over here, take a little bit of a stroll, take the picture, and then we went in. And we actually did some Bible study right under those trees right there. But we're looking at real places, real people, real events. During the Galilee ministry, Jesus is in Capernaum. Mark says he's in a house, almost certainly Peter's house. And there were some Pharisees. What do you know about the Pharisees? The only bad guys in the, in the Gospels, are the religious leaders, right? Now, remember, we looked at, look at uh, Luke 18. We're doing this life of Christ beyond A to Z. Where we're looking at passages that aren't directly addressed by that survey. But remember what we saw in verse 9 through 14 of Luke 18. Your best isn't good enough to get you to heaven. And certainly my best is not good enough. We need something more than what we can manufacture. So look at verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous enough to go to heaven based on how Jewish they were and viewed everybody else who wasn't as good as they thought they were with contempt. Who's he thinking about there, primarily? Starts with a P. The Pharisees. Okay. We got people dedicated to the proposition that they're good enough to earn their own salvation by being really good Jews and they doubt anybody else can be that committed. And, uh, he compares two people there, but he's telling warning them about the uh, the dangers of making salvation a do-it-yourself project. Okay, go back to to Luke 5. So we've got Pharisees and other leaders of the law from all over Israel here. And Luke reminds you, and Jesus, remember, has the power to heal, because he just healed a, a leper in the immediately preceding passage. So that's the setting for this. Now let's look at verses 18 through 20. And we're going to see forgiveness of sins, announced by Jesus. And some men were carrying on a bed, and the verse later he calls it a stretcher, something he can recline on, a man who was paralyzed. Now, we're not told if he's from the waist down or the neck down. I tend to see him from the neck down, but we'll, we'll find out in heaven. And they were trying to bring him into where Jesus was. Jesus was where? In a house, in Capernaum, probably Peter's house. And typically, you go through the front door, Right. But there's so many people, and it's not just the religious leaders, it's everybody in town that's trying to cram into this house, and it's overflowing. So not finding any way into the front door or the back door because of the crowd, and the crowd's bigger than just the religious leaders who are doing opposition research. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Now, some people really, really want to get to Jesus, right? Some people really want to come to church. It doesn't matter what the obstacle is, they're going to get there. And then he said, and let we read, Luke says, seeing their faith, Jesus seeing their faith, I'm going to tell you something. I'm convinced all five of those guys are in heaven right now, and they're already believers when they're coming to get this guy physically healed. They're Old Testament believers, I'm convinced of that. Seeing their faith, he said, To the guy who's going to heal as representative of all five of them, your sins are forgiven. Here's what this doesn't mean, and I've heard it preached this way. I do not believe Jesus is saying, okay, you guys are all unregenerate, but you believe I can heal him physically. So because you believe I can heal him physically, I'm going to forgive all your sins right now. I don't think he's saying that, Amanda. I think he's looking at guys who've already believed he's the Lamb of God, who've trusted him for salvation forgiveness of sins. And they're coming to him precisely because they believe he is the Lamb of God who can heal. And they're hearing the buzz that he is doing a lot of big miracles to validate who he claims to be. So rather than seeing this Jesus saying, Okay, right now I'm forgiving your sins, he's just talking about the state of it. Okay. Your sins are forgiven. Okay? Um, and it's possible and listen, who's who's the audience? In addition to the average people who crowded in that house, who's who's sitting there? the Pharisees. What do the Pharisees think about knowing your sins are forgiven? You can't know. you got to try to crank out enough human goodness so you have so much more goodness than badness when you die, God will let you in for being a very religious person. So he's using this opportunity to present the gospel basically to these Pharisees. So they won't say we didn't know kind of thing, right? So seeing their faith. Now again, I think a lot of people preach it this way. Uh, you know, The fact that these guys and this guy himself would want to come to Jesus is the way Jesus saw their faith. You know what? That's the way I would see their faith. That's the way Jack would see their faith. I can't see people's hearts. I can look at some of the fruit or some of the things they do and and sometimes surmise whether they've got faith or not. Jesus can see their heart. He knows their heart. But Luke's saying, look, he's going to pronounce this guy's sins forgiven as having stood forgiven because of his faith, not because he talked his friends into bringing him to Jesus for physical healing. So realize Jesus is prioritizing the spiritual, knowing it's going to blow these Pharisees' minds, but that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get that truth to them, even though they're going to reject it. So forgiveness of sins announced by Jesus. Your sins stand forgiven, you're fine, and we'll deal with the physical in a minute. Look at verse 22 through 25. Kind of triage. The most, the spiritual is more important than the physical, but in this case Jesus deals with both. Look at verse, uh, second guessing I should say, verse 21. So he does, the, makes this announcement, and he's, and again, the force of this is, hey, your sins are forgiven because I say so. Or at least that's certainly the way the opposition took it, and I think that's what Jesus meant, clearly. And clearly he is authoritative as God the Son to do that. But here comes the second guessing. Um, Second guessing against Jesus. He's charged with being a blasphemer, which is a capital crime under the Old Testament law. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, you know, whispering in the back, which is kind of, kind of rude when you're trying to communicate. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies and why are they saying he's a blasphemer? Keep reading. He's going to tell you. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, that's correct theology, Jan. You can take a truth and misapply it, and here everybody's saying, "Hey, only God can forgive sins." So who does this guy think he is? That sounds familiar to me. Go to, to John chapter two. At the very beginning of his ministry in John two, in Jerusalem, where the uh, the really big big shots of, Jerusalem, of Ju- Judaism were living and ministering and pushing this program that if you're good enough Jew, you can earn your own salvation. Remember, Jesus puts the uh, the temple, money changers in the temple out of business for the afternoon and uh, the Jewish leaders are making big money off the religion business so they're very upset with him for interrupting the the cash flow here. So in John 2, verse 18, the Jews, that's not anti-Semitic, speech, the Jews in the Gospel of John refers to the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders. The Jews then said to him, what sign, what miracle could you do to prove you're the Christ because you'd have to be the Christ to be in charge of the temple? We're in charge of the temple. What sign do you show us that you have authority for doing these things? For saying this is illegitimate what you're doing in the temple. Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now Jesus often says stuff, Chris, that he knows the Listeners will misunderstand unless they at first unless they really want it and will think about it. So you know Carson is the youngest one in here. Summer, not everything in the Bible you're going to understand at first, but if you really want it, God will teach it to you. Sometimes He uses teachers, sometimes He uses your parents, sometimes He uses the Holy Spirit, sometimes He uses life experience. You know, the older you get, in some ways, more of the Bible makes sense because you've got life, you kind of this uh, accumulated life experience. So anyway, the Jewish leaders, represented in part by some of their folks working for them in our Luke passage, are earlier saying, hey, who do you think you are? You need to be the Christ to tell us how to run the temple. Jesus says, well, let me tell you, the ultimate sign, destroy this temple, talking about his body, in three days I'll raise it up. What's he talking about? The resurrection, right, Julie? Talking about the resurrection. The Jews then said, it took us 46 years to renovate the temple at this point. We're not completely finished with it yet. You're going to do it in three days. But he was speaking of what? temple of his body. So go back to Luke 5. Jesus often says stuff that he knows will be initially misunderstood to force people to chew on it, to think about it, think about the implications. So uh, one ministry on radio says, uh, the learning is for living. And I thought that was a really nice slogan for a Bible teaching pulpit or a Bible teacher to have. The learning is for living. It's not just to give you in, 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 uh, intellectual information, right? So when anyway, I go back. They're second guessing him. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's good theology but bad application because Jesus is in fact God as the second person of the Trinity. Now here's our survey, synthetic study of the Bible here. That's the whole Bible on one sheet of paper there, folks. Old Testament, were the book's written before the life and death and resurrection of Christ. New Testament is written right after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The major premise of the Old Testament is what? Everybody sins and everybody dies, right? And you're not by works of righteousness what we've done. Your righteousnesses, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags compared to what you need. You can't just wrap yourself up in filthy rags and go to heaven. What's the major promise of the Old Testament? God's going to send a Savior. Now we're on the New Testament side of this, right? So we look back at the provided Savior, and the major premise of the New Testament is Jesus of Nazareth is the one that was promised in the Old Testament. He's the Lamb of God. He's to come back as a, as a lion. So we're looking at Old Testament dynamics here. I know the New Testament Gospels are written in, in New Testament era, but they're looking back to the Old Testament context. And we've talked about this a lot in the life of Joseph, but in the Old Testament, folks were saved just like we are by God's grace, through faith in the promised Savior. We just have a more specific object of faith on this side of the cross because we're looking back at a provided Savior. That's a summary of the major Old Testament passages written before the first coming of Christ about who the Messiah would be, where he had come to, when he would come, what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. And these guys, I'm convinced, all five of these guys, the four guys carrying the stretcher and the, the guy who's paralyzed, have believed Jesus is the Christ. They've accepted him as the Lamb of God. And now they've got a physical issue. So you look at these details, and Jesus validates he is who he claims to be, based on his miracles. But the Old Testament gives you a glide path right to him and only to him. That's one reason Matthew begins with a genealogy to show you all this lines up. So that's a a more comprehensive picture of how this works. Uh, you know, Lori McCann is on this side of the New Testament, Old Testament divide, but we're reading events in Luke today that happened before the death of Christ, right? So they're they're over there. Uh Genesis fifteen six, I believe that's in the Old Testament, isn't it? In the Old Testament? Yeah. so and, and we and he Abraham's used as a paradigm for salvation by faith throughout the whole Bible, from the That point on, Abraham believed God and God's promises about the Messiah and was reckoning him as righteousness. And then Jesus in John 8 says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day through the eyes of faith. And he saw it and was glad. And then we've got my personal favorite verse, and if you don't remember anything else I said over 31 years, just memorize Romans 4, 5 for me, okay? Uh, But to the one who does not work, don't do anything meritorious because we can't be good enough to earn it. But who believes in him, active receptive trust in Christ, who justifies the ungodly. Here's the thing to get for salvation, you've got to be ungodly. You, but everybody qualifies, right? That person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Abraham's faith was reckoned as righteousness. That happened that way in the Old Testament, happens in the New Testament, happens that way today. Same same thing. Um, only different, as I like to say. So Jesus is second-guessed. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But here's the thing. He is God, right? So look what he says here in verse 22 through 25. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, he knows what they're saying, just like he looks at these guys, and he's not looking at their works so he knows they've got faith. He knows their hearts before they even started coming to this meeting, Right? Jesus, is aware of their reasonings, these, uh, Pharisees wanting to, uh, second guess Jesus, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning like this in your hearts? You haven't connected. Have you read the Old Testament? Of course I'm the Messiah, right? And then he says, which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say get up and walk? Now that's kind of a Semitic way of arguing. I mean, technically, you can utter those words. They're both equally easy or hard to say. But he's, what he's saying is, is it easier for me to claim to be able to forgive sins? And since that's an invisible dynamic, I, I, you know, you can't see it. Uh, or is it easier for me to say, it, so that's easy, because you can't validate, you can't disprove it, technically, right? Uh, or is it easier for me to say, stand up and walk to this paralytic? And we're not told how long he's been a paralytic. It's interesting, John, in five, chapter 5 last week, said it had been 38 years, that particular guy. So we're not told this was an injury, an accident. Was born this way? We don't know. But which is easier for to say? Your sins are forgiven because I say so, and you can't validate that, so you can't really just prove it either. Or get up, your, get up and walk. You've been paralytic for however long. Now get up. Which is easier? It's easier to say, I can forgive your sins, because you can't directly validate that. It's invisible. But he's saying, let me do, in that sense, uh, a way to validate my authority by doing the harder thing, to say, get up and walk, and watch this guy get up and walk, so that you may know by experience, based on evidence, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, the harder thing, because you're going to have to put up or shut up, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And again, like we said last week, Dustin knows all about physiology and stuff, and so does Angel. She knows all the technical stuff, you know. But I mean, if he's been there, I mean, good night. You know, you spend six months in a hospital, it'll kill you. Just laying in a bed six months will kill you. Hospital is a good place to to get fixed, but it's not a great place to get well sometimes because you can get infections, and all kinds of stuff like that. And praise God for the for the hospital. You know, I mean, uh, I could crawl to the hospital. We live so close to the hospital, I could crawl if I had to. I don't want to, but it's it's a it's a reassuring to be that close to help if you need it, especially at my age. But, uh, yeah, so you can know, so I can validate, I can show you a sign that validates I've got supernatural power. He says a paralytic, pick up your stretcher and go home. And again, his muscles were atrophied, atrophied for a long time. So that's a miracle too. He, when Jesus heals you, it's 100%. It's not like a little bit, you're a little bit better kind of thing. And immediately, the guy got up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Now here's the good news about this one. At least it's not the Sabbath, so they can't blas- blaspheme Jesus for saying he's breaking the Sabbath, like we saw last week in John. It's just a regular day of the week. I'm not sure which day of the week it is, but as none of them tell us. But, uh, yeah, this should sound familiar because it sounds a lot like what we saw last week, but it is different, right? So Jesus trumps, can I say that? It's okay if I use that word at church? Jesus trumps uh, what they're saying by validating his deity, right? Uh, the lame will walk was one big messianic miracle that Isaiah emphasized. Uh, here's the status quo, which is the mess we's in, you know, in Latin. Common people are impressed, but not necessarily coming to faith in him as the lamb. Religious leaders stay offended. They, and you might think based on what we read in verse 17, we're talking about the religious leaders only, but Matthew makes it very clear that there were a lot of people, not just the religious delegation trying to find stuff not to like about Jesus there. some of the, A lot of the locals were there in and around the house. They, I take it the average folk, were all struck with astonishment that they'd just seen this unfixable case, this hopeless case, walking out the door carrying his pallet and began glorifying God, kind of generically, not necessarily coming to faith in Christ yet, but just generically. They knew God had to do that. And they were filled with fear. Let's talk about that. Phobos, one of the moons of Mars, you know, means fear. Uh, I remember uh, in Houston, Debbie, uh, we knew that young woman, Nancy, and she ended up falling in love with Steve, who's the accountant at the Exxon uh, Accounting Center. You remember what his last name was? Steve Porter, yeah. Um, when I was... uh Like the six months before I went to dental school in Houston, we were living in Houston, and I got a job at the Exxon Accounting Center after school, and I wasn't doing accounting. I was just delivering stuff in-house and doing some other clerical work, basically. But one of the big shots I met the first day I was there was a guy named Steve Porter, who was just a couple of steps below Bob Matthews, who was the big shot over that accounting center, who went to our church. We were just average twenty year old kids going to church, um, but anyway, uh, Steve Porter and he seemed like a really cool guy, and uh, I remember for some reason, we just kind of hit it off. he was kind of he was youngish to have that much authority, he was probably about thirty when you're whatever I was twenty one or twenty two or something that uh, seems pretty old, you know, but he he liked me and, and we didn 't interact a whole lot, but turns out that my big boss who went to our church, Bob Matthews, had invited Steve to come to church. Steve heard the gospel, was gloriously saved, and um, it's funny because, I mean, I always told y'all about this, but when we first moved to, to Houston, we got married in, uh, what was it a long time ago, July 14th, 1973, right? A day which will live in infamy. Now, uh, many years ago, this is before websites or anything. And all I knew was there was this school called Dallas Seminary where they taught people to teach the Bible, and I wanted to go a church to a church that had a Dallas Seminary guy, and we didn't have anybody like that in Nederland, but I knew there had to be some in Houston, so I just wrote this little letter to Dallas Seminary, you know, dear Dallas Seminary, my wife and I just moved to Houston, and I'm wondering if you have any of your alumni who are pastoring churches in Houston. So I waited for two weeks. Here comes the letter. There's a list of like a hundred of them. You know, they're just out everywhere, and it, they were listed in alphabetical order based on last name. Ben Brobnik just happened to be the first one on the list. So we're just gonna, you know, I'm a maniac. We'll just check. We'll check all a hundred of them out. You know, it just takes us a couple of years. You know. So, Ben Bravenick, and I remember, I thought he was pronounced Neck, that's how stupid I am. And I remember this, I was in an organic chemistry lab that afternoon, it was a Friday, and I remembered I had not called this guy yet, so during a break, I went to a payphone at the University of Houston, actually I had payphones back then, and I dialed the number Dallas Simmons had given me, to Ben Bravenick was his name. But I said, hi, I was kind of nervous, I said, hi, uh, I'm Brad McCoy, uh, is this, is this Ben Bravenick? And he went, Bravo neck. Uh Oh, sorry. Okay, uh, you're a pastor, right? You went to Dallas Seminary. You teach the Bible, right? Yeah. Uh, where's your church? Well, it was great. It was all the way across town. But that next Sunday, just a couple days later, we get in the car, drive to this address. We get there, and it's a daycare center. It's not a church. It says whatever the name of the daycare center was. But there are, you know, 20 cars there or something. And, I, and Debbie's kind of saying go in and find out if that's a church or not. She said something like that. She wasn't going to go in. But it, we couldn't tell, you know. I think we got there a little late. So, yeah, I kind of timidly went in there, opened the door, and they're like in there singing during a, a small worship service. So I said, I said, come on in. Come on. You know, it's good. And we plopped down there, and it was pretty awesome. You know, we plopped down there, and... Uh, Uh, We did some singing, kind of like we just did now, and then he kind of opens up the Bible, and he's teaching the parables of Jesus, never forget, and boom, just teaching the parables verse by verse, and I said, "This, that's neat, I like that, I've never been in a church like that, I grew up in a church where the guy would like read one verse, and then talk about related topics for 30 minutes, and sometimes... You know, it actually directly related to the verse, and other times you, you wondered, I'm not sure how he got what he said out of that verse, but it was all good stuff we probably ought to be doing. So, you know, it, it's amazing that uh, uh, the Word of God has this ring of truth to it, and uh get back to Steve Porter. <laughs> Steve Porter comes to faith, and I told you all that about the church and stuff, because we lived a long way across Houston to go to church every Sunday, and uh You know, we pretty much fell in love with that church. And it was about half the size of us and didn't even have a building. But we went every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. And I wasn't making points for future pastor because I didn't know I was going to be a pastor. I thought I was going to be a dentist, you know, or a dental missionary or something like that. So anyway, after Steve Porter comes to faith, we ask him over for lunch after church. But we hated to do that. I didn't hate doing it because Debbie always fixes something nice when somebody comes over. But we lived like... 18 or 20 miles away from the church, and it was okay for us to make that tri- trip three times a week, but we didn't expect other people to do it. It was very uncomfortable. Everybody else by the church lived near the church. So anyway, I remember, this is a long way to talk about fear, isn't it? But I'm enjoying it. But anyway, <laughs> I asked Steve, who's now my brother in Christ, and they were pretty cool. Uh, and again, we were already kind of like friendly, and we became pretty good friends. And so we invi- I invited him to come uh, have lunch with us. Uh, and so I remember uh, I rode with him uh, after church was over. Debbie drove our car, and I rode with him just to give him directions because we came a little bit later. And uh, I said, man, this is so awesome. You know, I always thought you were a cool dude. Now you're a believer, and it's great. And he said, yeah, it's incredible. And he'd been married, had bad marriage and all this stuff. He had a lot of baggage. And he said, but here's one thing. Uh, somebody, Bob Matthews had told me to read Proverbs. I'm reading a chapter of Proverbs every day. But what's this fear of the Lord thing he said, I've only been so afraid of God. I always was afraid I had done so many things wrong. He, he hated me. I was going to go to hell, but now I'm, I've accepted Jesus and he paid for my sins, but it's saying I'm supposed to fear the Lord. I don't, I don't fear the Lord anymore. And even at that point, you know, I realized there's something wrong there. And I said, I don't know what exactly what that means, but I'll try to find out. So guess what? I asked Ben Braveneck and Brave, Ben Braveneck. Not his real name said uh, it doesn't mean abject fright, it means reverential awe. That was a long long illustration to go back to this, but anyway, had a little time uh, <laughs> the The average guy who saw this or heard about this was filled with reverential awe this was this was not of this world. he'd have to be God to pull that off or have the power of God anyway. We've seen remarkable things today, um, yeah, so that's the passage. Now, let's remember who Jesus claims to be and what the New Testament the Old Testament really claims he is because you get passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 60 where the spirit of the Lord is upon the Messiah uh, to proclaim uh repentance and forgiveness uh to the to the poor and we've got the spirit and and God the Father and the Messiah all as parallel persons there. The doctrine of the trinity teachers in the person in, in the reality of the one god there are three separate persons there's one what but three who's the father is full deity but he's not the same person as the son nor the holy spirit the son jesus is full deity but he's not the father not the holy spirit holy spirit is a person not an an it not a force gravity's an it he's got mind will emotions but he's not the same person as the son nor nor the father um A friend of mine told me about somebody on social media who recently um, said, after hearing a heretical view of the Trinity, said, that's the clearest description of the Trinity I've ever heard. And I said, the problem, the reason that's so clear is because it's not the Trinity. It's heresy, okay? This is not something anybody would make up. It's just, especially uh, in connection with the Incarnation, it's pretty obvious Jesus isn't praying to himself, Right? But when where would you go in the New Testament to kind of validate the Trinity? Let me suggest a couple things. Uh, Personally, I think I would start with the baptismal formula, you know, going to all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name, that's singular, of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. But also I like the actual baptism of Christ itself, because you've got Jesus, the incarnation of God, being baptized, Right? You've got the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son and the Holy Spirit descending. So you've got three separate persons there. And so that's the solution to this conundrum. Who can forgive God's sins but God alone? You're right. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is God. Jesus is the man who can forgive sins because he's not just a man. He's the God man. That's the, the take home. Okay. Page three. So anyway, last week, as we've said a couple times, we saw, by the way, that's just an attempt to go from that basic diagram just to list the major attributes, and we won't take the time today to do that, although it's a great study, and uh, I know Mike at least remembers the Tours Live part, or the Two Juniors Live part, and that's a great way to kind of you want to clear out your mind when you're praying, just run those attributes for, to God in your brain and just kind of uh, glorify him, respond to that. It's a great way to do that. But let's interesting. I think this is an interesting comparison, especially since we looked at John 5 last week where Jesus heals a paralytic guy, and now he heals a different paralytic guy in Luke 5. So let's compare those. You know, people can have certain similar characteristics and yet be, be totally different in other characteristics. Okay, Katie, some people are very similar in the way they look or their ethnicity or that, that they're going to the same college or they live in the same neighborhood or whatever, but be very different. I mean, I look at Jamie and John and they got very different personalities. They've got the same parents, same basic genetic material, you might say. But yeah, last week we looked at uh, the healing of the paralytic in Jerusalem and this week we're looking at a healing in Galilee. So let's look, look at the Comparisons and the differences. I mean, the obvious comparison is they had the same basic physical problem, right? Stan, they're both paralytic. That's that's serious, boy. And I, I hope that never happens to me. That would be such a difficult thing to deal with. But they've got completely different spiritual issues. Remember, last week the event took place in Jerusalem of Judea. That's where the home offices of the religious leaders are. This week it takes place in Capernaum, but they've got their representatives to check him out, right? Uh in John 5, Christ goes to the guy. He just walks up and says, You want to be want to be healed? Do you want to get well? He initiates everything. In this, the man went to Christ. Can I say it that way? He had a little help from his friends, right? Because he couldn't walk, but his friends took him to Jesus. The Healy was not a believer. You know, got the healer, that's Jesus, the Healy is the guy receiving it. In John 5, he's not a believer. He didn't even know who Jesus is after the healing. Remember when they say, hey, who was the guy that healed you? He did. He told you to carry that on the Sabbath. You're a bad person. And he's a bad person. Who is he? I, have no, I don't know. Never saw him before. Uh, but don't blame me. He's the one who told me to carry my pallet on the Sabbath. He was not a believer before, during, and maybe not even ever. when I'm not quite sure you're going to see him in heaven. We're hoping. This guy is a believer, and Jesus deals with first things first. Hey, your sins are forgiven. Okay? You're right, I am the Lamb of God, but I can also heal heal you, and I will, to validate my authority to forgive sins. Uh, After the healing in John 5 last week, Jesus says, don't sin again. Now, we said in general, it's not true to say every time somebody's got a physical ailment or some horrible problem, they must have caused it by their personal sin. It's not true there's always a direct connection between personal sin and great personal suffering. Sometimes it can happen. But not always. But in this case, this guy had been. That paralysis for 38 years had been something that was a divine discipline on him. And Jesus is saying, don't let your ability to walk around now encourage you to go rob banks again or molest children or whatever he did. He did something pretty bad to have that state under the Old Testament covenant. This guy was not warned not to sin again. Today, he's warmed with immediate assurance that his sins are forgiven. As an Old Testament believer, you're good to go. You're fine. You're going to walk the streets of heaven one day uh, before he heals. Jesus heals him physically. The miracle was seen directly or heard about directly by the actual religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin leaders. Uh, The miracle is being seen here and reported back to them through their representatives. But the event validates Jesus as the giver of everlasting life, Jesus as the exclusive authority to forgive sins. So different aspects, different facets of who he is are revealed by these two miracles. But don't confuse them. They're not the same one at all, and they have different distinctive aspects. So let's close this way. The reason that Jesus can forgive sins is because He paid our sin debt for us. And, uh, in Colossians 2, which we're gonna, this passage will be in in a couple of weeks on Wednesday night, you know, He dealt with our sins by nailing them to the cross. Now, that's a metaphor. He didn't actually nail our sins to the cross, but He was nailed to the cross to take our, our punishment for us. If the salvation offered us were dependent on our merit, our ability to keep the law, or to be a good person, it would not be good news because we can't do that. Right? The law is not a ladder. We climb to God as a mirror. Uh, but salvation is not based on what we do for God, but what God in Christ has done for us. And we receive it as a free gift. I love this full title of Christ. You know, last week we talked about Yeshua is the word for Jesus, it means God's Savior. Just the name means that. But Lord Jesus Christ, Lord is a reference to the Old Testament word, the most uh, sacred word for God, the covenantal word for God, uh, translated in English with all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? Or Yahweh. So Lord Jesus Christ means Jesus is God, the God of the Old Testament. His name means God's Savior, and Christ means the anointed one, the Savior, the Lamb, and Lion promised in the Old Testament. So, you know, we look at those terms and we just think they're just kind of labels, but they actually are very important affirmations of truth about how Jesus is. Okay, so let's close this way. You know, we're all very different in many ways, but each one of us bears the spiritual image of God, yet marred by the fall and our own sin. And that transcends all colors and cultures and and countries and everything like that. And yet, each one of us is is incredibly unique, too, in God's eyes. And we've got different things we're supposed to do and experience. But it's all going to be sanctified as long as we're walking with the Lord as a believer. So if you've not trusted Christ alone, you can do that right where you sit. You know, I I love the example of the leper, an example of healing faith and saving faith. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He's not saying, I'll serve you, I'll follow you, I'll give you this. It's not, let's make a deal. I'll give you my little life, you give me everlasting life. That'd be a great deal, but it's not salvation by grace. That'd be salvation by merit. Uh, active receptive trust is Jesus. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. That's what saving faith is. As many as received him. So that's where it starts. Who gets the glory from that kind of transaction? The Savior, right? The, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So, you know, that's the gospel. We'll be told in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, the moment you receive Christ, that's your standing. That was the standing of this guy that couldn't stand, couldn't sit up, couldn't move. When he came to see the Lamb, he trusted in, And then Jesus did a a remarkable miracle that's still talked to this day. So he added all up in two words, amazing grace. So may the Lord who saved us who believed, direct us to live and share those good news, and and live it out so people can tell we're different. It's too good not to share. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your love, your mercy, and your goodness, and the purpose you have, not just to send a Savior, but to save all those who believe. And what a remarkable miracle. I mean, it's one thing, and people remember the guy coming in on a stretcher, walking out, carrying a stretcher, and that's amazing. Uh, and I'd love to see that happen today sometime. And I know sometimes you do miraculous healings. And we pray for uh, each one of these people on this prayer list, on the sick list, uh, if it be by will, Father, I pray you'd not work just through the medical folks, but over and above what they can do. And we've seen you do that many, many times, including uh, pancreatic cancer healed. But sometimes it's not your will, as Paul found out. You know, thorn in the flesh, he prayed intently about it and he somehow realized this is not going away, that our, our your grace is magnified in our weakness because we're forced to rely on you, we're forced not to be impressed with ourselves, and that's kind of exactly where you want us to be spiritually. So I pray, Father, you'd help us to think and live consistently with the amazing grace we have through faith in Jesus Christ so we might have more and more gratitude and appreciation and worship and love for uh, you as our Savior, and also that we might be more gracious to other people uh, when they wrong us or disappoint us, because you've forgiven us of so much. Uh, maximize our ability to forgive others and to be uh, uh, implements and channels of your grace toward others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.